grab the whole thing and bend it in its towards its uh, will, which is the will of stripping four parts everything, not creating a um, a productive uh, like an engine of increased productivity and innovation, which is the fantasy of American capitalism, but rather to cannibalize the existing American economy. I think people have often said that the term uh, late capitalism is sort of a pretentious non-concept. But to me, if it has meaning, that meaning is you're if you're describing late capitalism, you're describing capitalism that has ceased to form a progressive historical function and is in a state of uh, terminal cannibalistic self-destruction, which is what you get uh, since the, from the 70s till now. Uh, so like I said, we won't really get too much into the chapter. We all know the story, uh, but there are a few specific elements of it that Latchman points out that are kind of interesting and that I hadn't really seen re uh, reference in that specific way. Uh, one big thing he talks about is the process in the 70s, whereby these, uh, or in the 80s, whereby this newly unleashed finance capitalism creates this new uh, system where firms, which had been... Uh, focused in specific industries are now flush with so much fucking money and so little, uh, uh, not, not profits because profits at this point are still uh, in crisis, uh, but rather uh, credit and being a wash in credit are able to buy up smaller companies in other industries and become diversified conglomerates. Like that is the, that's the idea in the 80s, 70s and 80s is to create diversified conglomerates that have a bunch of different businesses in a bunch of different industries. But of course, that sort of lack of specialization leads to a lack of accountability at the top because there's no one person who knows all these businesses. And so being able to get them to work together and to increase, re uh, reduce redundant activity is undermined. And so by the mid eighties, a lot of these companies are sort of groaning uh, under their uh, inefficiencies. And because of the specific uh, incentives of the market are undervalued. Like the, 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 one of the big uh, revolutions of this era is that you go to a system of self-reporting where all of these industries and all of these companies are left to their own devices to report their profits uh, their pro their uh, their incomes their their get and and to essentially game them uh, toward with the eye of keeping the stock price high. And what this does in the eighties is it creates a situation where a bunch of these conglomerates are un are pegged by their own uh, boards. Uh, at being worth less than the com the composite parts of them would be. And so this creates the big leveraged buyout craze. If anybody remembers Wall Street, other people's money with Danny DeVito, this was the greed is good, go-go 80s, junk bonds, Michael Milken thing uh, that was really like the supernova for the neoliberal American economy. This blowing up uh, everything and everything that we live in, this is kind of in the, in the aftermath of that. And what it is is a process whereby uh, uh, groups are able to get cheap money, use it to uh, borrow it to uh, 
underbid basically for the uh, these conglomerates, take them over, excuse me, and then sell the component pieces. And meanwhile, the other thing that's happening that Latchman points here points out here and that I don't think gets talked about enough when we talk about how we're in the situation we are in is that because of the compensation involved in uh, finance starting in the 80s, you see a brain drain away from things like law, science, uh, uh, medicine towards finance. Like people, very smart people who in other uh, in a previous generation would have gone to work uh, for Bell Labs or uh, the National Institute of Health or become a lawyers uh, are now all moving to finance and bringing with it the uh, the fertile minds and the federal imaginations that could have gone to practical questions to instead the question of how to extract fucking rents from the economy. And they do an incredible job of financial innovation. And one of the big propaganda coups of the Clinton era, uh, and that guys like Larry Summers love to point out, is that the need deregulation in finance was necessary because it allowed for innovation. And that word innovation was left in people's mind to be related to innovation as it had stood in the old industrial economy, which had given us, you know, the jet age and all of our amazing technological innovations. Of course, most of those were funded with government money uh, because you need to have a non-pecuniary motive to fucking research in order to find anything worthwhile. Otherwise, all you're going to have to figure out is how to extract rents, which, what a shock, is what all these geniuses start doing. And the illusion, the, uh, the aligning that happens there is the assumption that innovation in finance has the same productivity-boosting effect as innovation in the industrial economy or the real economy. In fact... Innovation in finance only increases instability, undermines the real economy, and eventually, as we've seen, uh, destroys it from within. Uh, one, one thing that Latchman uh, says here that I think is a good way of looking at it is, so we say that um, the, the inflation that was in the economy in the 70s was tamed by the Volcker shock and other things in the 80s. And what actually happened is that inflation came out of the whole economy and was essentially uh, privatized and pushed into the finance sector. So inflation is still real. Inflation is still happening. But inflation is now not being seen as a rise in prices throughout the economy, but rather rise of stock prices, executive compensation, and the associate monies collected in finance, which gives finance a veto, essentially, over the rest of the economy. The way that the Dutch burgers were able to assert a veto power over uh, the estates of the Dutch Republic and having a similar effect to cripple the state's ability to compete in the world by, for example, having a fucking industrial sector. Worth the name.
And uh, for example, like that, uh, the wave of uh, conglomerate uh, lever- uh, leverage buyouts of conglomerates was largely um, uh, facilitated by this because the artificially low value of these companies I've talked about uh, was maintained because the companies that self-reported their worth, self-reported their share price, uh, essentially priced the real inflation out of it and did not reflect the actual inflation because that would mean lower profit margins. Higher value would mean lower profit margins, lower earnings per share. So they kept a lower value, which left them ripe to be taken over by somebody who is gladly willing to pay that lower book value and then uh, arbitrage the difference by shelling off, selling off the component pieces for their actual market value that isn't well, that wasn't put into the book value by these companies, which was reflected by the inflation uh, in assets that happened during this period. Because you got price inflation has gone, but asset inflation in the financial economy through the roof, which creates a new class of of uh, of hedge fund and managers and CEOs who now are directing the economy towards their specific uh, uh, interests, which are, because they're finance and not industrial or other economy, uh, stripping things for parts. And that's where we've been ever since. We've been in the in the stripping the fucking wiring and the copper tubing out of the building stage. Because uh, there is no nothing to stop them. Because... Once there is no longer a uh, a harmony among elites along a national project, then you get individual elite groupings and individual elites competing for individual profits in the system, which uh, brings about its collapse. Uh, at least that's historically how hegemons have failed, according to Latchman, and in this specific instance, how our specific hegemony is failing. Uh, Armies that can't fight any war but a nuclear one, which is looking more and more alarming as the days go on. Uh, And an economy that can't actually fucking uh, sustain itself. But of course, the question becomes, shouldn't this then lead to a new elite in another geographic area, another state structure that has been synthesized by all of this progress up until now to take the reins. You'd think so, and you'd think it would be China. Uh, But right now, the remaining, the plank of American hegemony that remains is its status as the global reserve currency. Then China, in order to be a global reserve currency, would have to get rid of capital controls, which would essentially mean uh, getting rid of their ability as a party state to control their financial uh, system. Much like our par- our parties and our political state lost the ability to control the financial system. The finance was part of one part of a of a collection of elite structures that were managed by a political economy in, in the, uh, the high Keynesian era. But now, 
it is it is just this predatory cannibalize cannibalist cannibal core. Uh, but there is no state to challenge it. That's the that's the the real challenge here, and that's the that's why the question of America's specific path of decline is so important because it is not the sort of decline that took place in previous generations when one hegemon was superseded by another. Uh, here, for the first time, we have a hegemon that has the capability to destroy all life on Earth if it feels its hegemony truly undermined. So I'll just read the last chapter, or last paragraph of the final chapter of this book to really kind of bring this together. Uh, the last two chapters, I should say. The power of uh, American regulation and the dollar will not be undone by elite conflict in the United States, since all elites derive their position in part from America's global financial hegemony, and their institutions are subject to Fed regulation. Nor is this power challenged by China or the EU's autonomy in other spheres, or by the growing ability of countries once under America's thumb to pursue their own interests alone or in concert. Their strategies of autonomy in all other spheres depend on world markets denominated in a stable dollar and presuppose the Fed's global regulatory role. Only if and when a sufficient concert of other nations devises a new regulatory mechanism for global finance and creates a process to back up demand in recessions and liquidity and crisis will American financial hegemony come to an end. While America's nuclear weapons pose a threat that is so nihilistic that they offer no practical response to, to countries that recognize and exploit the ever more severe limits of U.S. conventional warfighting capacities, the Fed and dollar provide palpable and regular support for the interests of elites around the world. Thus, U.S. financial hegemony endures, even as it corrodes the other pillars of American economic power and stymies the emergence of a stable post-hegemonic elite structure within the United States and of a government with enough autonomy to advance policies that could address the interests of Americans other than those elites who have built for themselves impregnable fortresses within largely autonomous institutions. So that's the bummer ending of the book, at least before the even bu more bummer uh, uh, concluding chapter after decline. So let's go there now. Uh, so that's, this one starts off with addressing... What happened to the previous hegemons? And what happened is, first of all, uh, it took a long time for the loss of uh, economic hegemony to translate into a real decline in living standards within these countries. Uh, the, the Dutch, long after, for decades after they had turned over the reins, really, of the global economy to the British, still had uh, higher living standards per capita than the England did. Uh, it took a long time for them to sort of be superseded by the British. Uh, and it, the British held out less long uh, from us, uh, but in both cases, there was still a relatively managed decline uh, that was, uh, to one degree or another, compensated for with some sort of redistributive process. Less in the Netherlands, more in England. And why more in England than in the Netherlands? Because England had a larger, more robust, and effective trade union movement to make demands for uh, social insurance and provision and things like that. Uh, but in both cases, they had the United States. At, uh, they had another hegemon there to, to maintain the system that they were part of. Uh, and now we have a situation where the United States is uh, unwilling 
and unable to recognize and deal with hegemony uh, failure and the reality of Chinese ascension, uh, because unlike those previous hegemons, we look across at, at the potential uh, inheritor and we don't see a continuation of our tradition. We see an annihilation of it. And so that's why I think we're much more likely to have some sort of war with China uh, than a peaceful handover of hegemony to them. Uh, but so the end, the book ends with the question, okay, so what happens to the America after decline? And uh, rather than offer any kind of rosy fantasy or some sort of laundry list of, of possible solutions, Latchman simply and soberly analyzes the current situation and then says, due to the elite conflict that has co uh, completely paralyzed the American state apparatus, and the failure of there to emerge any uh, citizen-based challenge to the existing political structure, that uh, there can be no amelioration from within the system. There can be no recognition from within the system of our condition. There can only be some sort of uh, uh, collapse or conflict. And I do think that, uh, that that does seem to be the case. We're seeing now with uh, uh, Brandon's decision to uh, essentially decapitate the British or the, uh, uh, the Chinese, uh, is it the microprocessing, microprocesses? Uh, it, it, someone tell me. I don't remember the specific industry. But there's a tech industry which has a lot of American advisors and a lot of American uh, semiconductors, there we go. A lot of American uh, know-how involved. Uh, and uh, Brandon just told every American working in semiconductors in China that they had to come home uh, and quit the job or they would lose their American citizenship. And every single one of them left. That's because the American state is recognizing that if it continues the technological transfer that is currently going on between it and China, taking the one actual, tangible, non-global uh, reserve currency-based uh, uh, advantage the U.S. has, beside, of course, our absurd and honestly white elephant-filled military and our intellectual property regime. It is our technological, specifically our technological innovation property regime. Uh, and if the Chinese are able to replicate it, then there that further undermines America's position vis-a-vis -vis the Chinese. So again, this is another situation where uh, we are, we collectively are deciding that we would rather fight it out uh, than try to come to any kind of recognition of the inevitable flow of the fucking history and, and the exhaustion of the American state project, which of course, how could we? Uh, like uh, our, our elites are always going to, at the end of the day, be suicidal cannibals because they cannot conceive of collective action. They are allergic to it. They are only able to carry it out when all of their interests are aligned by outside forces. I think that's the key to the Latchman thesis, is that you have a state empowered to take control in competition, that to, to emerge victorious from competition with other states, 
when that very competition aligns elite interests in one way. But that alignment of interests over time, as conditions change, breaks up and pushes everyone in every group and every individual elite into competition with one another, which means they can't acknowledge anything like the reality of decline and have to instead insist on the maintenance of hegemony, hegemony, even as they, with their every action, undermine America's capacity to be a hegemon. So it's hard to see this as leading anywhere but a war with either party in charge. That's the funniest thing about people wanting to to figure to 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 squint at like Republicans and imagine them as some sort of anti-imperialist force, uh, any anti-war sentiment that you see on the right is animated not by a repellence against the concept of conflict and war. The martial virtues are key elements to any kind of right-wing political project. Rather, it is for, against what they see as a waste and if, uh, of America's fighting capacity, fighting the wrong wars, specifically right now against uh, Russia uh, through the proxy of Ukraine, when in fact we should be aligned with the Russian state uh, in a in a like a nationalist an, a nationalist international to go against uh, China and the finance capitalists. Uh, I mean, this is it's amazing how this comes into harmonic focus no matter where you are. I mean, even fucking Kanye West gets this. I mean, he hasn't read a newspaper in his life. Uh, or, or a book, apparently, but he gets this because when he describes uh, the, the dark forces colluding to, you know, have his children be alienated from him and for people to not like his new music as much as they liked his old music, uh, the answer comes back to China, just like it does for guys like Steve Bannon. Uh, and just like it inevitably has to do, has to uh, come for the other nationalist parties. If America, this, this is, of course, the big if, if America can't be uh, magified. I think uh, you're seeing a very interesting phenomenon here uh, with what Saudi Arabia is doing. Saudi Arabia is clearly uh, sort of putting its, uh, it's, it's realigning itself towards Russia. Uh, and also at the same time, clearly, uh, as it has been, supporting the Republicans and specifically Trump. And there is talk about Russia. I know a lot of anti-imperialist pro-Russia people think that there is some, uh, that there is some Chinese-Russian alliance against America. Uh, but that's only as long as uh, the United States government is beholden to uh, you know, international capitalism as they understand it. Uh, but if that, if the, but, but international capital is also facilitating the movement of power to China as it has to. Uh, and that means that there must inevitably come a conflict between Russia and China. Uh, and the hope of the American right is that that alliance could win that war. But of course, we all know no one's winning shit. <laughs> Any war that comes is uh, is going to be a, a full conflagration.
But the, yeah, the problem is, is that China can't give Russia what it wants, like an alternative to the American financial system, because again, they cannot make the renminbi the world currency or or a reserve currency of any kind, because then they would have to uh, remove capital controls and financially deregulate. And then they wouldn't be a fucking party state anymore. That's the red line that they have. But I don't know what's going to happen. I, all, all that Latchman sees and that I agree with is that there can be no uh, internal fix for this. Uh, the internal uh, structures are pointed in one direction, and there is no there is no hand at the wheel. I think isn't that a what's that what's that Godspeed you Black Emperor song about? There's no one at the wheel, hoping my wallet and it's full of blood. That whole deal. But I think turning that into nuclear war that destroys all life. It's like turning climate change into uh, runaway ver Venus thing that kills all life. You're just, you're, uh, I think it is at the end, a, a, a narcissistic desire to be the last person. Uh, a narcissistic desire to not miss anything. To be the cumulative and total and final apotheosis of humanity, even if it's bad. I don't think any of us, I don't think we get off that easily. Uh, I think that there's more struggle and pain ahead than we could ever fathom, but that the process is essentially eternal. Although I do believe that there is, there is a point when somewhere at some point when there is a real apotheosis, but it is not war. It is not climate change. It's not death to all because, all right, we turn the earth into a superheated uh, hellscape. The earth has been a superheated hellscape in the past. Life still emerged on the, the wreckage and in the rubble. And it will continue to do that cyclically. And that cycle is eternal, but then it is punctuated and embodied, I think, at the end by a, 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 a total consciousness. And I say that, I, I was talking to somebody about this the other day, and they didn't get that part, and I honestly didn't get it myself. I, it's something I think, and I say it, and it's like, well, why do, what do I mean by that? And I finally think I understand why. It's because if you imagine uh, existence as a consciousness field, not as, you know, material plate fixed in space, but as just a suspended field of consciousnesses throughout time, which I think is accurate. I think the, the, the new Nobel Prize winners in physics would agree. Uh, there's no local reality, right? It's either local or it's reality, or it's neither, but it's not both. And uh, for me, what makes sense is that there is no uh, reality. There is no uh, existence outside of perception. But what is consciousness? Consciousness is, by definition, uh, retroactive and retrospective. 
Consciousness is not experiencing an event. It's not having a sensation. It is the reflection upon that sensation, which has to, has to happen after it. And that means that there has to be a final event, a final point uh, at which all consciousnesses are embodied and then retroactively uh, perceived. I don't know. Uh, and that moment is the individually for individual consciousness, the moment of death and the moment of death of the universe, you know, uh, But death is not the blowing out of a light, the, the, play, the replacement of darkness or light with darkness. It is instead the elimination of the distinction between the two. I don't know. I have no idea. I'm just, I'm just trying to make sense of, of how I can feel relatively... Uh, peaceful in a way that I never used to be able to. Uh, and to me, that's the only thing that makes sense. Uh, and of course, you know, it's all up for refinement. But the reason I would never start a cult, and the reason I would never proselytize, is because I think the real implications of this is that Stakes as we understand them, moral stakes as we understand them, do not persist that we will all, no matter what we do in life, no matter what our experiences are, will have the experience, the, the subjective experience of, of reconstitution, reunion, uh, and therefore there's nobody who needs saving. You know, there are people who need help. We all need to help each other. But there's nobody who needs saving. The idea that we need to be saved is the building block, the, the fulcrum uh, of the cultural justification or religious cultural justification for class society as such. You cannot, if you have saved and damned, then... It is your duty, right, to to uh, increase one group and, and decrease the other. And how can you do that? What mechanism exists to do that other than our, our orders, our structures of governance and society that we can imbue supposedly with a religious idea, with a, a, a system of values that can increase the number of saved. But what they actually do is just increase the amount of uh, surplus that our uh, exalted rulers get to enjoy. So I was thinking, and I was, and I was also thinking, well, if this is true, like the idea of conscious, like existence, universe is a consciousness field. Then how? What of materialism? What of historical materialism? What of our precious material 
understanding, our dialectic materialism. What about, we love saying materialism, don't we folks? It's our favorite word. If there is no real material outside of our perception, uh, if there, if objects don't have uh, uh, content that is independent of, of our collective observation and uh, assertion of them, then my God, what is what can material be? And uh, I think the way I make sense of it is, is that yes, like uh, the uh, universe is just this consciousness field we are suspended within. Nothing is real as we as it were, uh, but. The mind that creates it is not an individual mind. It is the collective minds of all that have ever existed and exist currently. Of course, also will ever exist, but those contributions are essentially invisible to us. They're, they operate in a spectrum that our sense apparatus cannot perceive, at least not conventionally, and cannot communicate about conventionally. Uh, but we do not experience life that way. We experience life as individual minds. So that means that our encounter with this, uh, this realm of ideals is one in which the solidity and the materiality of others, of other things, of other people, of other objects, is reified in our own individual minds because of our inherent uh, subjective alienation from all of those other minds. And so that is why, though we make history, we do not make it as we wish, and that we are bound by our conditions, because these conditions have only been made by minds and are only made of minds, and our minds as part of that mind, but they can only be experienced by individuals individually coming into contact with them, and then trying to assert flailingly in fits and starts uh, that unity uh, through cooperation, uh, but only through, only restrained, because we cannot communicate to ourselves or to others the fundamental unity of these things and the fundamental uh, uh, mutability of, of these things because we can only communicate as individual minds. So to me, that's how I make sense of that seeming contradiction is that we're all minds. It's all mind. There is no material, uh, but it is perceived subjectively as material. I will pilot the Eva. I, I'm not. I, I never watched that show, but apparently it's about a little nerd who won't get in the robot. Uh, I, I'm a big nerd who will get in the robot. Okay. Uh, so, so that's Richard Latchman. I'm mean, sorry for the uh, the little detour at the end, but. The end of the book is kind of a bummer, so, you know, I want to get somewhere more uh, exalted at the end there. Like I said, I want to do a book about China now. I've had a couple of very good recommendations. I'll think about it. I'll let everybody know which one I've chosen. Uh, but uh, maybe right now, maybe next next week I'll do another one that's just uh, some fun hangout Q&A. Uh, 
but yeah, because if, if we're if we're cash, the question becomes, then what is China doing about it, and how uh, can China adapt? But you know, if the missiles fly, it really won't matter. Because it's very hard to imagine a hegemon in a context where they have the capacity to escalate to nuclear confrontation, not taking the path. Because if you have a button on your desk, it's there for a reason. And why would you ever step back from the button without pressing it? Why would you ever give up power, give up control, buck break yourself when you could press the button? And find out what happens. Because, my God, it's there for a reason. Now, the, 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 the Russians didn't do this because, I do believe, because there was something, uh, there was something beyond hegemony in the DNA of, of that governing structure. Uh, and they're the most cynical, you know, uh, monstrous people in those regimes, uh, they had a lot to gain by the end of communism. They could, they imagined themselves integrating into the new capitalism from a position of strength and power. So they had no incentive to blow everything up. And the true deal communists don't want to blow up anything. Now, though, there's on, there are only cynics and monsters at the top of this system because any true believer has been grounded to dust and obliterated. So faced with the idea of final humiliation and dethronement, which is the same as death, why not take everybody else with you? And if not, and, and maybe you wouldn't, that's the thing. Maybe you can win. Maybe you can win. Why is that button there? Why do we have this capability if we might not win? I think you're seeing that with Putin. Like a lot of people. In, oh, by the way, I should read. I forgot to read this part of this book. It's pretty funny. Uh, like Putin's invasion of Ukraine uh, is something that people thought impossible because of its uh, potential for disaster, right? But Putin rightly understands that absent a war with Ukraine, or at least an attempt to assert like a real uh, uh, territorial control of those areas and, and those pipelines and stuff to dictate oil prices and stuff and not be undermined, that uh, that Russia's autonomous autonomy, the Russian state and bourgeois autonomy will eventually be obliterated. Well, you've got this army for the Christ's sake. See what it can do first before you fucking run up the flag, run up the white flag. And that is what's insane about the NATO position in this war is that they basically want the uh, the Russian elite to kill themselves. Why? For the good of for the good of uh, the rule of law or some fucking bullshit. Who would do that? Would you do that? Asking them to do it is, is absurd. Okay, here it is. So this is a, this is a paragraph about the likelihood of uh, 
nuclear of, of real military conflict in the coming. This book was written in the middle of the Obama or the middle of the Trump administration, like 2018. The United States, despite recent and forthcoming diplomatic reverses, remains in a far stronger geopolitical position than Britain held in 1914. Most of the strong military powers are American allies, and neither Russia nor China has any plans to confront the United States or to attack smaller countries that would provoke the United States into war, as Britain was by Germany's invasion of Belgium. The realignment of trade and diplomacy in Asia likely eliminates the possibility of war between China and its neighbors. Neither the United States nor NATO regards Russia's intervention in Ukraine as a causus belli, and that assessment most likely will not change. Nor will Russia, whose army depends largely on volunteers and professionals since it reduced the length of conscription to 12 months and broadened exemptions in 2008, risk fighting a war against a hostile populace backed by NATO in the Baltic nations. Thus, the United States has no fear of being drawn into a war with any nation that has a significant military. And you can laugh at that, LOL, owned... But in 2018, that looked correct. What is not, can't be taken account into account is the rate of decline. And honestly, I think COVID as a phenomenon, uh, like Trump being president, uh, is one of those increasingly frequent black swan shocks to the system that knock us uh, into new trajectories of intensification uh, that are not predictable in like a fixed moment in time where you presume a certain stability of conditions moving forward. All right. I got a few, I got a little time more. If anybody has any questions, I could take those about the book or anything else. Sir, yes, the cool zone, indeed. I have not picked a China book yet, if anybody has recommendations. Where are the crags, crabs? They're in my dang underwear. Nora Connolly, James Connolly's daughter, had correspondence with Trotsky. That's interesting. Didn't uh, didn't James Connolly's like brother, young, son, or something teach Lenin English, which is why he had an Irish accent when he spoke it? Have I figured out who Gambo is? Hmm. I mean, at the end of the day, who Gambo is is the uh, is the anachronistic character, right? Gambo is the modern subject who can reflect the horrors of the medieval world to the audience from a position of superiority, right? 
uh, uh, so that we can kind of look down on these these fucking hicks. Much, you know, uh, Mad Men did the same thing. It's very difficult for shows about the past, especially now, not to uh, fixate on that. And I feel like uh, with that being the case, uh, I don't know. I mean, the uh, is it is it Rhaenyra? Is she Gambo? People are trying to make Damon into Gambo, but I cannot accept a man that unattractive as my Gambo. I can't do it. I can't look at his face. I have to look at the screen through a camera obscura. And I gotta say, the, the Amon kid with the eye patch, somehow even more hideous than Matt Smith. They really went all out with, with grotesques on this this season, this show. It does very much seem that they're trying to uh, set up the the, the, the blacks, Rainier's faction, as the, like the good progressives, uh, and the Greens is like the bad reactionary uh, uh, side. Like it's it's Hillary versus Trump all over again, uh, as it must be forever and ever in all uh, mainstream entertainments made by Hollywood liberals, which cuts against the other. Uh, real theme of the whole Dance with Dragons, which is that none of this shit actually mattered to any of the people in the fucking uh, uh, country who were just getting you know, burned to, by dragons and cut to pieces by armies for something that meant nothing to them, that meant nothing to their well-being one way or the other. Uh, and it'll be interesting to see if they can tease that out more. Because I think if you could really harp on that, like, because like, to a degree it's kind of annoying to see them stack the deck for the blacks the way they have and sort of pander to liberal uh, verities the way that they have. But at the same time, if they really show consistently the indifference of both sides to regular people, that they might, it might, it'd be more interesting, I think, but we'll see. It's crap. It's all crap. We're all just having a good time. We're all just, we all just want to watch our stories. We all want to be entertained. The American empire can only entertain. So my God, try to at least be entertained. Okay, so people say that's a new. Someone says multilateralism. Isn't that just an, another way to get a nuclear war? If you do not have superseding institutions to uh, to uh, militate conflict in a nuclear multipolar world, doesn't doesn't everybody? Isn't everybody eventually and? given crisis conditions, eventually it's going to come faster than you think, decide to press the button. I'm not saying you need uh, NATO, because that'll that eventually, eventually the existential need to resist uh, NATOfication will lead to the conflict either way. But the idea of multipolarity as, as something that will rescue you from uh, total conflict seems uh, like wishful thinking. Like the only real, like world government, as much as it is allergic to the American mind, is the only real uh, salvation. International institutions. Now, the problem is the international institutions we do have only exist to support international capitalism. But yeah, I'd much rather have unipolarity under China than some multipolar thing that 
what? It's going to be everybody fighting everybody else. How? What is? What is to prevent the poles from going to war? What's? Well, fucking nineteen fourteen was multipolar. How'd that go? I don't think anybody really knows what multipolarity is. They just know that American hegemony is bad and that something should replace it. And I agree with that. But I don't think any any national bourgeois formation that currently exists as a state structure, certainly any of the ones that have nuclear capabilities, uh, is in any position to replace it with uh, more human institutions that recognize you know ecological limitations and 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 uh, values beyond consumption. You know, I gotta say, I think Fukuyama. People make fun of somebody asked about Fukuyama, and he, apparently he says that we're still at the end of history. I think he was always right. I mean, people people have been making fun of him for twenty years, but we have been twenty years of crisis, right? Twenty years of deep crisis, and has any alternative? Emerged? Really? Has any alternative political economic structure to liberal democracy or capitalism with like a liberal democratic gloss really emerged? The question is, how does the end of history end? And I think it has to end with a bang. Maybe a whimper. But since we have nukes, I think it's probably going to be a bang. The only problem that Fukuyama had is that he had normative assumptions about what endless liberal capitalism, no alternative to finance uh, uh, consumption, the matrix that we live within. Uh, he thought that that was good and that we'd come to some you know, stable accord. But instead, that that, that triumphant system is is the death knell of uh, of civilization. He was uh, hard, he was right, but for the wrong reasons in the classic way. Do kind of wonder if the the. The creation of nuclear weapons did not necessitate their eventual use in, in, in a totalizing fashion. But again, so we have nukes. All right, fine. Is that going to kill everybody on Earth? Maybe. Probably not. Even if it did, though, it's still Earth. It's still a bunch of stuff on it. It's still a rich melange of... of Molecules banging into each other, chemicals bubbling and throbbing. A cauldron from which something will emerge. So that's why I, I think that even if Fukuyama was right, it doesn't matter because that history that he imagines is might have an end. That means that another history will have a beginning. And we're all part of it. Can't be disentangled from it. We cannot be isolated or alienated. So that is all an illusory 
a necessary illusory uh, presumption that allows us to pilot our bodies through time and space, but that eventually, I think, is uh, superseded by a greater understanding. There's organizing to be done, but it is for survival and dignity, not for abstract notion of uh, change towards uh, equilibrium. All right, a couple more questions. Somebody says, this is all a simulation. Uh, the real world, everything is like my anime. I, I, I want to say this about simulation. I do think that we are in a simulation. But I think the way we think about that is incorrect because it assumes someone is doing the simulating. It assumes some outside force, like pressing a button to make a machine go or like a, an alien doing the thing, a god pressing a button. Uh, I think because the universe is cyclically created and destroyed, and that in that intervention in between the creation and the destruction you have life play out like the uh, unfolding of entropy uh, that that those conditions only obtain during that specific arrangement of atoms that is then that same space filled with another one and another one and another one uh, which all serve as simulations of a greater uh, uh, mind, I guess, but a mind that is made up of those simulations, that is not outside of them. Like, it's a simulation the same way that, like, your dreams are, your thoughts are. Not, not programmed by out from outside. But the very act of perceiving through time and space as a being in a body, collect all of us doing that and all things doing that, all having those experiences, uh, through that, those experiences creates the world, creates the structures of the world, then destroys them. And the thing is, like, I truly, I don't believe in free will at all. Like, I, I would say that we are all absolutely from birth charted on a course. But because we don't know that, because we live, as I said, after action, we live in the, we live in, in, in the, uh, the time delay between 
perception between being acted upon and the perception of an act, uh, uh, the perception of a, of a sensation uh, that we are f totally free to interpret the actions that we will go through in life. The, our interpretation of our predetermined actions, why we do them, what they mean, what our perceptions mean is up to us. I know this is all gibberish, and I'm very sorry. I'm just trying to talk off the top of my head. If it doesn't make sense, that's not your problem. It's definitely mine. And I think that's the that's the that's the premise of uh, of the the Taoist golden path, right? Uh, it is it is not willing oneself to control things uh, or detaching oneself from what is happening to uh, your, what is happening to you, but rather turning everything that happens to you as it is happening to you to the thing the the, the thing that you want to do the thing the, the your most uh, your most preferred course of action. All right, so this is good. I'll talk. We'll talk again soon. Got one more show on the tour, but after tour, I'll come back, let you guys know which China book we'll be doing, and then we will put that one out there. Uh, we'll start reading that one then. Okay, talk later. Bye-bye.